Once again, I'd like to welcome and thank everybody for being here this morning. What an encouragement it is. It's a blessing for us to come together. This is God's design. It's not just something we've chosen to do because it's Sunday morning we had nothing better to do. We have nothing better to do. This is the best thing we can be doing. But it's because God has designed for us to be together. And we're thankful that you're here to encourage us. We want to be an encouragement to you. As I mentioned before, we want to help you get to heaven. We want to help you serve God. We want to glorify Him in doing that. And the best way I know how to do that is to have you open your Bible and see what He says. This is the most important thing we can be looking at. We're going to be looking at a lesson today that talks about apologetics. I was just part of a study in the last couple of days on evidences based on the chemistry of living things. Uh, Brother Buddy Payne is doing a fine job in Gettysburg. I'm sure you continue to do a fine job this morning as well. I've been asked in mid-June to present a series of lessons on evidences for Christian faith, apologetics, uh, in Lexington, Kentucky. So I'll be going there soon. And this is going to be my introductory lesson. I wanted to share it with you today. So I think it's something we ought to be thinking about. Soon we're going to be studying about personal evangelism. And apologetics and personal evangelism are very much tied up in one another. And so I thought I would share this lesson with you today as well. So I pray it'll be useful to you. Um, we're going to sort of ask the question as we go, what is apologetics? And I want to start with this text that we just looked at, that our brother read from 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want to understand that he begins talking about someone harming you. <laughs> Who can harm you if you become followers of what is good? Peter is writing in a context where people need to defend their faith, and it may cost them their lives. I want to suggest to you that apologetics, that the defense of the doctrine of Christ and some other things we'll be looking at, is a, is a life or death situation. Whether or not we are faithfully following God, our eternal life depends on that. We may not be facing a sword. We may not be facing the hostility that the people in the first century faced, but we need to understand why we believe what we believe, and we need to help other people understand why we believe what we believe, because it is a matter of life and death. They were facing a sword. We are facing eternity, and everyone on earth is facing eternity. And so he starts out in this context of someone harming you, but be a follower of good. Even if they take away your body, you will be with the Lord. But in the midst of this, what he tells them in verse 15 is that they ought to sanctify the Lord God in their hearts. This is what Christians ought to do. We ought to set him apart, make him holy in our hearts. The Lord as God, some translations say, that's true. We need to set apart Jesus as our God, as our Christ in our hearts, and to be ready to give a defense to those who ask us for the, uh, the reason for the hope that is in us. It seems it was a hostile asking in 1 Peter. Today, it's probably not going to be as hostile. It may be. <laughs> there may be those who are challenging us. How can you believe in God? But most of the time, it'll be people that are just curious, and they'll ask us in a less hostile way, I believe. You do not have to be a Greek scholar to understand the New Testament, but I wanted to put this word up here, this word apologia, and that's probably not even how you say it, so I'm not a Greek scholar, but I want you to understand why we're talking about apologetics. It doesn't mean you tell someone, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. That's not the point of this. Our word apology comes from really giving a, a, a defense of why you did what you did when you're saying, I'm sorry, I did. Here's, here's the reason why. <laughs> I'm sorry if that offended you, but here's what I was thinking. And so that's our apology, and it comes from this root. But the idea of this word is to give a verbal defense and literally a reasoned statement or argument. That's an apology. When we talk about Christian apologists, we're talking about people who are laying out a, a good argument, a reasonable argument, why we ought to believe in the Bible as opposed to the Quran or some other books, or why we ought to believe in the God of the Bible as opposed to any other sort of deity that I might think 
would be good to follow. And that's called apologetics. But I want to suggest to you, and I think the Bible will suggest to us, that that is a work of all of us. Here is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. I want to look at uh, a few uh, verses in this chapter. Uh, in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 7, he says, It is right for me to think this of you. He thinks that they're uh, going to be doing well and, and they're going to be completed until the day of Jesus Christ and they're growing. It is right for me to think this of you because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you all are partakers with me of grace. That word defense is the same word that was used by Peter, and it's the word apologia or apologia uh, there in the Greek. And so Paul says that these people have been helping him in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, that they're partakers with him of this grace. And then a little further down, verses 15 through 17, he says that some, while he's in prison, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense, the apologia of the gospel. What this shows us is something interesting. That Paul understands that both himself as an apostle and the Philippian Christians are apologists. <laughs> he understands they've been helping in defending the gospel as he's been defending the gospel. They've learned what he's doing, and they're doing it as well. And therefore, he is confident that they're going to grow and become what they ought to be, and God's going to be able to fully form in them full disciples because they know how to defend what they believe. They're not just believing on blind faith. That's what we're accused of. That's one of the accusations that comes down. You'd rather feel than really know what you're doing. You just have this blind faith that everything's going to work out. That's not even hope. That's just, well, it'd be nice. That's not the Bible hope, and that's not Bible faith. The faith is reasonable and something we can share with other people, and we believe it because God reasoned with us from the Scriptures about what we ought to believe. So apologetics, I want to just start right away saying, is the work of the everyday Christian. It's not something reserved for guys who are holed up in a library with big, thick books. It's not for just the apostles, and they've already done the work, and so we don't have to. It's for all of us. We ought to all be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us to everyone who asks. The gospel, the truth, that's what the gospel is. It's truth revealed. It's good news that God has revealed to us is under attack by Satan, by unbelievers. Atheism is on the rise in this country and it's becoming evangelistic, if I can use that word. Atheists believe they need to teach people the reasons for not believing in God and they are making a campaign. You can see billboards uh, in South Carolina, there was a huge campaign going on while we lived there. There were billboards all down the highway. You don't have to believe in God. Call us and find out what's better. That's what they were saying on these billboards. It is evangelistic because they believe there's a faith in, in atheism. And so the gospel's under attack. It has been. It was attacked while Jesus was laying it out. He was attacked by Satan personally. And so all of us are. And unbelievers are attacking the gospel. And so there is a need for defense. Those who believe the truth have a certain duty to defend, to apologize in the truest sense of that word for what they believe. And that word means to give an account for, a reasoned account, because belief in God is reasonable. You can reason it out. And that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit today. There are some of the other lessons that get deeper into that. Today, I want to just talk about the concept of reasoning through a faith uh, and, and what we, we're looking at in that. What is apologetics about? 
But maybe later we'll look at some of the other lessons that talk about the reasons for faith, and they are reasons. You can reason them out. Um, the heart of apologetics, then, for, for all Christians, for all who believe in the truth, is looking at the reasons we believe and being able to share those with other people. That's, that's apologetics in a nutshell. There's a lot more to it, but that's, that's the basics. The truth is, as we see in 1 Peter 3, as he says, for all of them to be ready, God expects us to be able. God equips us, actually, to be able. He's given us everything we need to share in terms of what the gospel is. There is more that he's given us in terms of just what he has made, and we can look at the evidences for his existence in that way. But right here, we have what we need to defend our belief in the gospel, and that's what's in this word. And that's why we need to understand it and know it as well as we, as we can. But God expects us to be able to do this work. He told the, uh, uh, Peter told uh, those he was writing to that they needed to be ready. The English standard says they need to be prepared. I like that word even better. Because it shows that they didn't just sort of accept things and then hope nobody asks because I don't want how to say it. <laughs> uh, you know, oh, I better take you to my preacher. He can tell you. That's fine. But isn't it better if you can just say, well, here's why I believe. <laughs> here's the reasons why I believe. Now, I'm not going to say it's going to force you to believe, but I want you to know that I didn't just sort of accept this because it sounded like a good idea at the time. There are reasons why I believe what I do. And here they are. I'd like you to think about them as well. Now, someone's going to poke holes in those or try to. You need to be ready for that. Be prepared with what you're delivering for them, which means you need to know it and be able to share it. And so the first way that we prepare, the first way that we get ready for this apologia, this defense of the gospel, is by living in accordance with the truth. I love how Peter points that out in 1 Peter 3.16. There are those who are challenging them in the first century. Among their own Jewish brethren, the ones that they had come out of, were challenging them. How can you believe this, this blasphemer that came along? And among the Romans, there were those who were saying, oh, this is some new religion. The philosophers were saying, how can you believe in these things? But Peter said that they are to be able to defend. And he says in verse 16, having a good conscience. As you defend your faith with meekness and fear, have a good conscience. That comes from clean living, from living accordance with what you teach. That's where you get a good conscience. Your conscience becomes guilty when you believe something, but you don't do what you believe. Then your conscience weighs on you. Now, you may believe something wrong and, and not do it. You still have a guilty conscience that way. But we're talking about with Christ, the revelation of the truth, knowing the truth, and then living in accordance with the truth. That brings a good conscience. So somebody comes and says, you say you believe this, but in your life, what do you do? <laughs> How do you really live? <laughs> and if they can point to things where you're inconsistent because you say, I believe this, but they can show, well, you act this way and you say these kind of things and it looks like you don't believe that then you don't have a good conscience and they can point it out. But if you're living what you believe, when they begin to try to accuse you and you say, yeah, did you not notice that in that instance I did this, in this instance I did this, that's exactly what I believe, they'll be ashamed as they begin to try to poke holes in your life and they can't do that. Think about how important that is when we talk about the qualities of elders and deacons. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, verse 7, verse 10, talk about a man who is blameless, man who has a good testimony among those who are without, who are outside of the, of the church. That's a good thing. Here's a man who has integrity. Here's a man who the community looks at and says, we can't blame him either. Think about how much damage has been done in the name of Christendom for these great mega preachers who are preaching one thing and then their lives come out and they're involved in prostitution, embezzlement, and all these other things. Have you not heard some of those cases as they've come down? 
And do people not say, see, that's why I don't believe in Christ. <laughs> that's what I used to say when I didn't believe in Christ. Look at those guys. They're all scoundrels. They're just robbing you blind and then living the way they're telling you not to live. I don't want to be a part of a religion like that. And then I read the Bible. <laughs> they're not part of a religion like that either. They're not, they're not reading what God said. They're not living by it. But we need to because people will look at our lives. We're going to be under a microscope and they will challenge us. Are you doing what you're telling me to do? Do you really believe this? Yes, I do. <laughs> and that's why I'm changing my life in accordance with what I believe. So the first step is to live it. And as we do that, we'll grow in our understanding of it because we're practicing it. I tell people all the time, Christianity is not a theoretical religion. It's a practical religion. If you only know Christianity in theory, you're not a Christian yet. <laughs> you need to be doing what it says. Jesus didn't say, let me, let me tell you about the man who builds on the rock. He listens to my sayings and says, those are fabulous. <laughs> no, he listens to them and then goes and does them. That's how you build on the rock. It's when you practice Christianity. And so as you live it, you're better able to defend it because you can see in practice this, this stuff works. But God also says that we need to be ready to give a defense, not just live a defense. That's a great first step. But we need to be ready to give or prepare a defense. As we live the truth, it ought to be the case that people see that we're different than what they see around us. Our neighbors ought to notice that we're different. And they ought to come to us and say, wow, like nothing ever gets to you. I don't see you upset about the things everybody else is upset about. I don't hear you saying the kind of things that everybody else says. I don't see you living the way everybody else lives. Why are you different? <laughs> if we're not getting those kind of questions, maybe we're not different enough. <laughs> we ought to be strangers in a strange land, not to be conforming to this society, but being transformed, Romans 12 says, as we lay our lives down as a living sacrifice. We ought to be different. I'm not saying intentionally awkward and gawky to stick out, but we ought to be visibly different because we live differently than people here live. It's just truth. And if we're asked about it, we ought to be able to tell them why. We do have hope and we have hope for a reason and we need to be able to defend those reasons. I'm going to be teaching this in Lexington right off the campus of UK. So this question, are you more ready to defend your basketball team than your faith? is going to hit hard there. Here it might be, are you more ready to defend your politics than your faith? Are you more ready to defend your heritage than your faith? Whatever. But so often we are really ready with a conversation about something we're passionate about. But if somebody asks us about our faith, we're like, well, go ask my, go ask my preacher. <laughs> let, me, let me think about that a little bit. We better be ready to defend our faith. It ought to be something we're passionate about. It is our eternity that's at stake and theirs <laughs> as we're able to defend or not the reasons why we believe what we do. If we love people, and we ought to, we ought to be able to show them the hope that we have and why we have that hope. And so an opportunity is when they come and ask us, why do you live the way you do? Let me tell you about that. They might not like it. They may think it's bigoted. They may think it's closed-minded. That, that happens. But we'll be able to give them a reason. A lot of times when I begin to study with people who don't have any experience with the Bible and who say, you know, I don't really like this kind of thing, I'll say, listen, you know a caricature of Christianity. That's what you've heard because I was there. I at least want you to leave this study knowing what the Bible actually teaches and what Christians actually believe. After that, you make your decisions. I can't force you to do anything. But I want you to know what the book actually says instead of what you think it says or what you heard it says because that'll make a difference. And that's where we that's part of our apologetic. We stand to show them what, what the truth actually says. So often, we make caricatures of others. We do. They make caricatures of us. But we need to make sure that we're trying to clear that up by our lives, 
and by the simplicity of our teaching. One thing that Paul says I think is amazing to the Philippians is that in apologetics, as we're standing for the defense of the gospel, we become partakers with Paul in the case there of this grace. Partakers of grace as we begin to defend our hope and our faith. That's an amazing thing to think about. Those who oppose the truth, the truth is that they're, they're lost. And God, by His grace, through the gospel, has the power to salvation for everyone who believes. That's what the grace is, that this God is willing to forgive through the power of the gospel and through their repentance and belief in, in Him, coming to Him. God can forgive everyone who believes. That's grace. And we have the opportunity to extend that grace. I love how, how Paul encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. I know you all have heard me talk about these verses a lot, but I just think they're beautiful. This is where our hearts and minds ought to be as we're thinking about reaching out to others. And I want you to notice he doesn't say the preacher here. <laughs> he says the servant. He's talking about all of us. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. What a blessing to share in that grace. As a servant of the Lord, if I learn not to quarrel but to be gentle, if I learn to be able to defend, to be able to teach what I believe, and I'm patient and humility correcting they can escape the snare of the devil. <laughs> That's what our task is. I'm so thankful someone put themselves to that task with me. I was very ensnared. I'm so grateful that someone brought me the gospel. That's what we're to do. And so we get to be partakers of grace with Christ, with the apostles, and with all others who are standing for the truth. What a blessing. And the truth is, as we learn better how to share the gospel, in a hostile world, don't think the world is not hostile to the gospel. You can listen to the news for about 10 minutes, and they're hostile to the gospel. They're trying to preach things on the news that are exactly the opposite of what God would have us believe, and they're trying to mainstream things that are completely against God's nature and His character and His desire for people. And people are getting ensnared in these things. It's a hostile environment. But if we learn better how to share the gospel in this hostile world, we can better extend God's grace to people who need it like we need it, uh, but that's what apologetics really is about. That's the importance of this. So I want to help you. This sounds like a lot, but I want to sort of narrow this down to give you some, some areas to think about that'll simplify this a bit. I think there's three areas of a defense, three areas of, of apology that make for a good apologetic. If you don't take anything else home from this lesson, think about these three areas and learn how to sort of defend what you believe about these three areas, and you'll be able to help somebody and maybe only one of them is necessary, depending on who comes to you. In Exodus chapter 5, as Moses goes before Pharaoh with this demand that the people be let go, Pharaoh's response shows us a pretty typical response whenever we begin to talk about God. Exodus 5, verses 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. <laughs> so here's an area of apologetics. Who is the Lord? Who is God? <laughs> Who is Jehovah? 
And why should I obey his voice? I've got a voice. I know some things. Why should I listen to him? That's what Pharaoh's saying. Pharaoh saw himself as a god. Uh, a good friend of ours likes to say that Moses and God then gave him a 10-lesson course on who God is. We call them the plagues. That's exactly what he did. He showed him who God was, and he was more powerful than all of his gods that he believed in, and finally, more powerful than him. Uh, we need to be able to defend who God is. And I want to see some other places where we see this concept. In Isaiah 41, I love this challenge. Recently, we studied Isaiah here. I love this challenge that God lays down uh, to the false gods, to those who are trusting in the false gods. It starts in verse 21. I want you to notice the idea behind this of reasoning things out. That's, that's what we're talking about here with apologetics. God says, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them, let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yeah, do good or evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. <laughs> wow. Bring forth your strong reason. Let's hear your case. Convince me. And the way you can convince me, God says here, that you're a God is, tell me about something that happened a long, long time ago that no man alive today saw. Tell me how that went down. Has God ever done that? You ever read Genesis? <laughs> he talks about a lot of stuff that no men ever saw that were alive when they received that. And he gives details. Stuff that's, some of it, even really verifiable. There's a lot of times he'll say, and this is still here among us this day. Go, go check it out. <laughs> And then he'll tell of things that are going to happen way off in the future. That's what Isaiah is about to do as he calls a man by name who's going to be 150 years into the future still. It's an amazing thing. God says, just do one of those, either one of those, and, and I'll believe. <laughs> He's giving them a chance, and they can't. They can't talk about the past with any clarity. They can't talk about the future. They, they can claim to, but then the things don't come to pass. And so, who is this God? How can we know he is truly God? Well, he, by prophecy, is one of the main ways and by the things that he reveals. And so we look at these in our, in our apologetic. But that's a question that comes up. How do I know your God's the right God? There's a bunch of religious books out there. That's a good question. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in one of the other areas of apology. What about in Acts 17? Here you go. You've got Paul standing before the great philosophers of his day. And he's, he's met them. They've, they've asked him to come down and speak at their forum. Can you imagine how intimidating that might have been? Unless you're ready to give a defense, then what a great opportunity that is. How often does Paul just take advantage of a great opportunity? Just like Jesus did. Every time you see Jesus, he's teaching. Doesn't matter who's there. He's teaching. Great religious leaders? Great. Let me ask him some questions. <laughs> uh, and Paul here, among these philosophers, and he's before Felix later on, and all these places he is going to take advantage of an opportunity to present a defense, a reasoned argument for why he believes what he does. But I love this in Acts 17, how he takes advantage of this moment. He's been thinking about this conversation he's going to have. He's been walking through the city looking for things he can bring out to sort of bring them in and then teach them. And he says, uh, Acts 17, starting at verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the object of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. <laughs> There's a God out there that they don't know anything about. I want to suggest to you that's the case with most people, even a lot of people who claim to know God. They haven't 
met him here. They've heard about him somewhere and they've accepted some things without doing any kind of research. And so a lot of very religious people we come across, they're worshiping a God they don't know anything about. And we have an opportunity to proclaim to them this unknown God. Now, we don't want to do it in an offensive way. You don't know God. Let me show you who he is. But hey, you love God. I love God. Let's open the Bible and read about him together. There you go. <laughs> There's a start of a defense. And all you can do is read the text and they'll begin to see things that they've never seen. How often have I sat across a table with somebody? I'm not sure what the points are going to come up in the conversation, but we begin reading the text and they start saying, oh, how can you say that? And I'll say, what did I say? You said, and they'll read a couple of verses. I'll say, well, I didn't say that. It's right there. I never saw that before. It's amazing. The defense is in the text. Now, when we know the text, we can bring out some more points about it that'll help them to firm up what they're seeing. But it's amazing how few people that are very religious have actually read the Bible. I dare say most of you here are going to know more than most of the people you'll be sitting down to study with if you have this kind of an opportunity because you're actually studying your Bibles. Now, it's not every case. There are going to be some. Some of these atheists have made a point to know the Bible so they can try to tear it apart. I was one. <laughs> that was my mistake <laughs> because the Bible showed me I was wrong. But ones who are really sort of looking at the arguments and then trying to bring an argument to you, if you can answer them well, thankful for the ones who could answer my arguments really well, <laughs> You can help them to see, wait, that is true. I need to rethink that. And so, who is this unknown God? That's a, that's a real point of apologetics. Let's, let's show them who God is. And finally, Hebrews eleven six. This is all uh, one point I'm trying to make here. I, I think it's obvious by now, but I, I want to look at this. Hebrews eleven six. It's such a simple but profound thing that the Hebrew writer says here as he's going through this hall of fame of the faithful and the importance of how faith works, how it makes people do things. But he says in Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Some people sort of have this vague idea, oh yeah, God exists out there somewhere. And he's, he's impersonal. He doesn't care about us. No, I have to believe that he is and that he cares enough about me that he's going to give me a reward if I seek him out. That there's a relationship to be had and he wants to bless me. <laughs> i got to believe both of those things about God. One is not enough, and that was certainly the issue uh, in the Areopagus. They believed about gods in some sense, but they didn't have any real interaction. So does God exist? And is it reasonable and is it worthwhile to believe in Him and to dedicate myself to Him in some way? And I believe the text of the Scripture absolutely shows all of that is worthwhile and reasonable. And we can share that with people. So I want to suggest you the first real line of defense is going to be a defense of God. Some claim there is no God. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And there's many that fools are saying it out loud, not just in their hearts. But we have an opportunity, we who believe, to show who the real God is. Some believe that one God's as good as another. You call him Allah, I'll call him this, you call him whoever. And it's all we're all going the same way. All roads lead to heaven. Who are you to say your God is the right one? That's, that's an accusation that comes a lot. You know, who's to say that Christ is really the Savior? <laughs> There's a lot of other saviors that have come into the world, and we'll follow ours, you follow yours, but don't be judging us. Who's got the right to say their God is the right one? We make those claims, that we're following the only Christ and the only God, and how are we making those claims? I believe we can defend that biblically. A good apologetic should include a defense of God and His nature. Does it sound familiar when we think about the unique nature of God, that's the word holy, that's the idea. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's the idea. They don't have all this plurality of gods like the Canaanites have. You have one God, the unique, the holy God, the God of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. However you want to say it, he is holy, holy, holy. And we ought to be able to defend his unique, his holy nature. Who is God? He's the holy God. And that's, that's who we, the living God, as Paul would call him. I serve a living God. Uh, when he's on the boat, it's about to sink. And he says, the living God whom I serve. <laughs> He's the one who told me we're all going to be saved if we'll do what he says. Wow. That's an amazing thing. There's a second area that we ought to consider, though. We first need to be able to defend that there is a God. If we're going to go anywhere, we've got to have a starting point, and God is the starting point. He is the origin. But then, look at Matthew chapter 1. I'm not going to read all of chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. I want to read some snippets here, but look how it begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then it goes on a little later and we get to the end in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Once upon a time in the land of so-and-so, there was this... That is not what we're seeing in Matthew chapter 1. We're getting a genealogy. This is a real person that's being talked about here. And the language of the Bible is never this mythical sort of fairy tale language ever. It is always historical narrative language or poetry. But when we're talking about telling the story of the Bible, it's historical narrative. We get that over and over. So who is this Jesus you keep talking about? Is he a real person? I thought he was just made up, sort of an allegory of, of the savior type. And we, we've seen him in Greek mythology. We've seen this man, God, and all kinds of other things. So your Jesus is a real person? Absolutely. <laughs> he is the son of God. That's the claim that's made, and we ought to be able to back that up. He is the Messiah. He is the promised Christ. That's the word that we use in the New Testament, but the Old Testament, they were looking for the Messiah. He's a real person that came into history and claimed to be directly related to God of the same nature. And so that's an important thing to talk about. Mark begins his gospel with it. Let me tell you some good news about this man named Jesus, who is the Christ, and he's the Son of God. <laughs> Get your attention yet? Now let me tell you about him. That's how Mark begins. That's the way we ought to be beginning. Yes, I believe this, and let me show you why. In Mark chapter 9, though, I love this. <laughs> You've got people who believe who Jesus is already. They've already said, yeah, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, but they don't really fully understand what's going on. <laughs> and so Jesus takes them up on a mountain, Peter, James, and John, and he shows them without any doubts who he is. He becomes uh, bright from within, this, this whiteness, this purity of light. But when we get to verses 7 and 8, uh, after Peter has said, let's worship you and Moses and Elijah, God intervenes. This cloud comes around them and overshadows them, and a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. <laughs> Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. So Jesus is a real person? Yes. Well, who should we be listening to? Is it Jesus or is it Muhammad or is it somebody else? Does Jesus have any authority from God or is he just another great speaker. Just another wise man. Well, God says, hear him. Don't listen to Moses anymore. Don't listen to Elijah. Listen to this guy. This is my son. And over and over, Jesus will claim to have authority. We need to be able to defend why we believe that. In Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and following, Peter tells why they believe Jesus has authority from God. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, he poured out this which you now see and hear, these miraculous gifts that were happening there that are clearly supernatural. 
clearly come from a divine source. And then he says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, here's the tie-in, the one you crucified, he has made him both Lord and Christ. Does he have authority from God? Lord means absolute authority. <laughs> Who is he? He's Messiah. He's Christ. He's the one God had been promising to send. You killed him, but God raised him back up. And so now he has authority. Did they believe it? 3,000 said, what do we do? <laughs> if he's in charge, we've messed up bad. What do we do? And Peter tells them. <laughs> God's grace was extended. But who is this guy? Is there any proof of his claim to be the Christ? Well, anybody else ever come back from the dead? No. <laughs> the answer is no. Not by themselves. And that didn't end up going and dying again. Jesus is the one. And he's the one who has the authority from God for life and death decisions. And finally, in this context of looking at this second area of apologetics, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul just lays it out so simply. I, I love, he is, he's a man who, if you wanted to get into deep theology, read Galatians, read Romans, he can get into deep theology. But at times, when it just needs to be as simple as possible, he can be as simple as possible. He just lays it out for the Corinthians here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, I delivered to you, first of all, or of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren. That's the gospel in a nutshell. This is what I taught you. Why are you straying from these things? How can we be certain that Jesus is the Christ that was to come? Did anybody else do these things? How did Peter know Jesus was the Christ? He could see what Jesus was teaching and doing. He knew what the scripture said the Christ would be. He saw it. When John was asking, are you the Christ or we send for another? When Jesus said, go tell him what you see and hear. John can do the same thing Peter did. We can do the same thing Peter did. We've got these Old Testament prophecies that point to what this man would do. They were written hundreds and hundreds of years before he did them. And when he did them, there's proof right there. This is the man that was coming. There's no one else who's done this. Some have tried. None have fulfilled and fulfilled perfectly all of these things. There's great evidence in that. How can we be certain Jesus is the Christ? That's a question that comes up. So the accusation has been made that Jesus is not the Christ. He's just a prophet. And, you know, there's already some holes in that. If he's just a prophet, he's also a liar. <laughs> because he said, I'm the Christ. He said, I'm going to come back from the dead. And so a false prophet doesn't even bear our hearing. Why, why would we spend time listening to a false prophet? So many do. <laughs> but they want to negate Jesus while they listen to some other false prophet. Jesus is not a false prophet. In Matthew 26, the Jews set up a guard so they could prove that he didn't resurrect because we don't want that deceiver to have his body disappear by the disciples and then his deception be worse than it was during his lifetime. Now, they ended up providing one of the ultimate proofs of the fact that he did resurrect <laughs> because they tried to keep that tomb so sealed up and they couldn't stop it. So... The accusation is made that Jesus is not the Christ. We need to be ready to defend that. A good apologetic will include a defense of Jesus as the Christ. And so we see two main things that an apologetic will involve. God and his unique or holy nature. Jesus as the Son of God, as the promised Messiah, as the Christ. Those two are necessary. You might be thinking about where the next one is headed. And you'd probably be right. John chapter 17 Verse 17, Jesus' great prayer in the garden there, his, his priestly prayer, as some have called it. He says to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So what about the Bible? Is the Bible God's word? Is it truth or is it a collection of fables and myths? 
And we need to be able to think about that. That was something I challenged a lot when I first started coming to understanding what the Bible is. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37, here's Paul among a group of believers who are starting to do things that aren't in accordance with what they say they believe, and so he challenges them. But he ends up saying, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. You say you're a prophet and you're saying some things? Well, it contradicts what I've already written as an apostle of the Lord. These are commandments from God. What you're saying cannot be. <laughs> They're not going to contradict. And so acknowledge right away. He is not saying, I hope you will. He's saying, you must acknowledge this. I'm an apostle of the Lord. So the question is, what the apostles wrote. Is that God's word? Paul seemed to think it is. The others acted as though it was. They, they demanded, they gave commands as apostles. Is it truth? Or is it just sort of their thinking about truth? There's, a, there's this, it's not that new anymore, but sort of this postmodern idea that the, the apostles just sort of got this vague idea of what Jesus wanted and they sort of expressed it in their own terms. Or that the Bible was revealed in such a way that it gives ideas and we're supposed to fill in the blanks because we just can't know. Now, God revealed truth and he revealed all truth through the apostles. That's part of the plan. We need to be able to defend why we believe that and show how we believe that. But is the Bible then just some collection of sort of ideas the apostles had? Or is it a revelation that's direct from God? And what does it say about itself in that? 2 Timothy 3, these verses we know really well, I think. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So is what the apostles wrote inspired? Or is it invented? Peter says very clearly, we did not invent fables. We saw the Lord in his glory. We heard God say, this is my beloved son. We didn't make any of this up. But that's the accusation. That's an accusation we still have to deal with today. And people may not believe our defense, but we ought to at least try to defend why we don't believe it's made up, why it's invented. And finally, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. In this context here... Um, Again, I love the way Peter defends the word and the revelation. Um, I just alluded to this uh, concept, but he just says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables in verse 16. We didn't make these things up. But he says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word confirmed. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. It didn't come individually, and then we figured it out and then wrote our interpretation of it. It came never by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is what the writers themselves believed about what they were revealing. Now, we can test that. We'll have to test that. We'll have to figure out, were they lying when they said these things? But that's the question that comes up. And so one of the great areas of apologetics is, how in the world did the word come about? How did we get it? And how did they get it? And is it trustworthy or is it spurious? Is it something they just sort of invented that, that anybody could have come up with these things? And I believe there's good reason to know where it comes from, what's its source, and there is much more evidence about whether or not we have what the original words were. That, that's, it's almost a, a, a non-argument anymore. So some claim the Bible is not the word of God, but it's the word of men, or they'll claim that it's not the word of the Spirit, but it's just fantasy, men who have made these things up. Compare, I ask you, compare the Bible to any other religious book. You will see right away the great distinction that the Bible has compared to any other religious book. It's just, it's blatant. That's one of the great tests. 
Most people aren't doing comparatives. They're not including the Bible. They've rejected it already. They're looking at other things. Include it. Judge it for yourself together with other things, and you'll be impressed with the difference the Bible has. But a good apologetic should defend the Bible as the inerrant, inspired will of God's Spirit. I said that on purpose. The Spirit is through whom the revelation comes. Uh, but it also makes it a little easier to remember the three areas of apologetic. God as the holy, unique God, Jesus as the Christ, and the Spirit as the revealer of God's will that is true. So God, Jesus, and the Spirit. Those are the three areas of revelation, or three areas of apologetic, the Spirit specifically in terms of the revelation of the Word. So as we look at those things, is Christian apologetics really necessary? Apologetics done well, I believe, is essential to evangelism. It's part of what we're doing, especially in our world. It's antagonistic. Our world has religions that are built on Christ that don't have Christ as their center. Christianity, as the world understands Christianity, is really not based on who Christ is. It's a watered down or completely misguided, intentionally sometimes, from where Christ began and where Christ stands. William Lane Craig, who is an intellectual, to say the least, and an apologist, says Christians who depreciate the value of apologetics because no one comes to Christ through intellectual arguments are very short-sighted. The value of apologetics extends far beyond one's immediate evangelistic contact. It is the broader task of Christian apologetics to help create and sustain a culture in which the gospel can be heard as an intellectually viable option for thinking men and women. The accusation is you're a bunch of feelers rather than thinkers. <laughs> you just don't think about what you're doing. You just accept stuff and you go with it. I've seen how it looks. I've seen it on TV. I think one of the things that impressed me, now this is not a proof that people are doing it right. One of the things that impressed me as an atheist, as a thinker, someone who thought he was a thinker at least, as I was studying literature and these other high pieces of writing, as I visited for the first time a group of Christians and noticed they all had notebooks and were taking notes on the study, they all knew the Bible and could answer the questions that were being asked. That was the first time I'd ever seen that. I'd been in many, many churches growing up. I had been through many, many things and had rejected the notion that there is a true God and a true Christianity because of all of the falseness I saw. But as I sat there, denying still, but as I sat there watching people who were actually intently studying the Word and writing down and asking questions and then looking them up, and I was there for a few weeks and saw them coming back with answers to the questions they had asked, that was impressive to me. That was an apologetic of sorts. These were intellectuals. These were thinking people, not just people who just accepted whatever pastor so-and-so said. And we need to be that kind of people. Now, again, that's not the proof that this is what's right, but it certainly is helpful that we don't give this impression that we aren't really thinking about what we're doing. I love Paul when he reasons with Festus in Acts chapter 26. I want to leave you with, with these thoughts that Paul brought out. He's been accused of being too intellectual, perhaps. As he made his defense, he's making an apologetic of the gospel and of why he who once persecuted Christians is now a believer in his teaching, why he ended up in jail because the Jews sent him down there, and why he's now a thorn in the side of Festus and, and Agrippa and these other guys. He's making his defense, and Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. 
Did he think Paul was just some crazy, I'd rather feel than think kind of guy? Absolutely not. In fact, he thought he had gone so far into digging in and thinking through these things that it was making him crazy. And Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. (laughs) I speak to you the words of truth and reason. That's an apologetic. (laughs) He was reasoning through why he believes what he did. He was laying out truth before Festus. Festus is the one who couldn't handle it. He's the one who couldn't believe in these things that sounded incredible. You know what? They sound incredible. They sound unbelievable. It sounds unbelievable that the loving God who created the universe and has watched it spin off into sin and into decay would be willing to reach in himself and try to right the ship. He's the only one who can. It's an incredible thing to think that this God would send his son down to be like one of us, to live a life that is so distinct from ours that people hated him for it because they felt judged by his goodness to the point that they put him on the cross. It seems incredible that that would have been the plan all along (laughs) and that his going to the cross was exactly what was needed to save those people who hated him so much that they killed him. And he even said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. (laughs) But as he then shed his blood and love for them, he was able to pay the price that sin exacts, that is, death. (laughs) But because he was the Son of God, he resurrected him proving that he was the Son of God. He predicted he would do it. He said, I have the power to do it, and he did it. (laughs) No one else has ever made a claim like that and done it. (laughs) There are some that have made the claim, but he did it. I love that he says, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And when they're saying, what happened to our Lord? The angel says, go to Galilee. That's where he said he was going to be. And they went there, and there he was. (laughs) He kept a commitment after his death. You can't write that in your, in your agenda and then be there after you die. Whatever's in the agenda after you die is just going to get thrown out with your stuff. <laughs> Jesus kept it. He proved that he had the power over life and death and over sin, which is what causes death. That's worth defending. <laughs> That's what Paul was defending. That's what our lives ought to be a defense of if we're living according to his will. Because all of us who are believers have also died with him in baptism and been risen to a new life to live for him, to live with him, and to show by our lives what he was showing with his life. (laughs) That's what we're called to do. If you're not a believer, I want to urge you to consider intellectually, to reason through what the Bible has to say about this man who who came and paid the price for your sin. If I can help you with that, I want nothing more than to do that. That's why we're here. If you want to come and study with us more, all of us here would love to have you. Those who are online with us, the appeal goes to you as well. If you're not a Christian, today's the day to make that right. You can come forward confessing that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You can confess your sins and have them washed away as you enter the waters of baptism. You can rise to a new life where your life can be a defense of the truth as well. If that's not where you are, but you want to study more, if you are a Christian and you're struggling to live the life you ought to live, we want to help you with that as well. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you with it, why don't you make it known by coming forward or reaching out to us. We're going to sing this song to encourage your obedience. <clears throat>